All right, well, we've had the wedding passages read, and so welcome to another EV wedding. <laughs> no, um, does feel like that, doesn't it, though? Um, hey, guys, my name's Jono. If I haven't met you, lovely to meet you. I actually met a whole bunch of new people on my way in tonight. It was lovely to meet you. Um, we're doing something a bit different tonight. You can tell that by the giant PowerPoint screen behind me that we're doing something a bit different. Uh, ordinarily, we'd work our way through a book of the Bible together. Um, and so we're going to kick off doing that again next week as we jump into the book of Job. Uh, but this week we're doing a topical talk, and you can guess what it's on, marriage, dating, and sex. Uh, now, why that topic? Uh, why is that going to be worth our while particularly? Well, a, a bunch of reasons. First of all, uh, marriage and, and sex is a great gift from God. And so tonight is a chance for us to have a look at what the Bible says about one of God's good gifts to his people. Uh, secondly, though, my hope is tonight will equip us, equip you, equip all of us, uh, to answer some really important questions for yourselves. Should you one day get married? If you do, who should you marry? What, what's the deal with dating? How does that fit into that? There's, there's a bunch of reasons why it's important. Another reason it's important is our world is constantly preaching to us about this topic of marriage, sex and dating uh, to some degree. Uh, and so we need to listen to what God's Word has to say about this. And so tonight's our chance to do that. Uh, we haven't done a talk like this in, I reckon, more than five years. And so this is a bit of a, a different night for us as we tackle this topic. And as I said, I met a bunch of new people coming in. And I do just want to promise you, this isn't what we do every week, just by the by. It's a bit of a random night in some ways if it's your first night with us. Um, and so stick around and keep hearing what the Bible has to say about all of life, not just this little topic as well. Um, but let me pray, and then we're going to jump into this together. So let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, we see that so supremely displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has done for us on the cross is just staggering. And so, Father, we pray as sinners rescued by the Lord Jesus that tonight you'd help us to sit under your good word to us. Father, assure us of this from the very beginning, Lord, that you are good your commands are not burdensome, and that you love your people. And Lord, help us, even now, we pray, to, to commit to trusting you at your word, uh, whatever it is you have to say for us in it, even when it's challenging and hard and bites and cuts. Uh, Father, we pray, please, that you would do a great good work through us in your word tonight and by your spirit among us. Amen. Well, here's how we're going to tackle those three topics you can see up on the screen there, marriage, dating, sex. Uh, part one, we're going to jump into the, the topic of marriage, which is really the biblical foundation for anything you want to say about the topic of dating, which is the second part of what we'll look at tonight. Uh, there won't be one particular section on sex, but it's interesting enough that it'll come up where it wants to in those two topics, and you'll all listen very well, I'm sure, when that comes up. And so let's jump in. Uh, first of all, marriage. Here's the first big thing that I want us to see that comes right out of that first reading back in Genesis chapter 2. Marriage is a good gift from God. So God designed it, and he gave it to us for his good, for our good. The context of Genesis 2 is that God has been making all of this good stuff. In Genesis 1, he made this, it was good. He made land, it was good. He made trees, it was good. It, there was fish and birds and animals, it was good, it was good, it was good. Uh, verse 31, chapter 1, everything that God had made was very good. And so then as you come to chapter 2, verse 18, which was the start of our reading, 
These words are meant to clang for us. You're meant to go, oh, what do you mean? Look at verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. It is bad. It is not good that the man is alone. And so God does something about it. God and Adam, they have that kind of famous animal parade where they bring all the things, the created things in creation and see if there's any good companion for the man to be had, but none of them cut it. Adam's like, the giraffe is nice, but I don't really want to marry him. And so uh, verse 20, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so God does something amazing. He does something incredible. He carefully designs, he creates a partner for Adam, one who is made of the same stuff. He doesn't just whip out like the blueprint for Adam and he's like, I've done this before, I can whip up another Adam for you, I'm sure you guys are going to get on well. No, no, he actually makes the woman from the man and so she is like him, she's made of the same stuff, she's made in the image of God as well, as chapter 1 says, but she's also different, wonderfully different. Have a look at verse 21. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, he's pretty happy with what's happened, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Adam's really impressed with this wonderful person that God has made for him, for them to be together. And notice as well, notice what the author says as we read on. Up until now, as we read this account of creation, we've been talking about um, a man and woman who have been made um, equal but different. He's been talking about the fact that they've been made equally in the image of God, but I want you to notice as well that they're made for a particular purpose. They're made, man and woman, for the purpose of marriage. Manhood and womanhood is the foundation for the thing that we call marriage. So have a look at verse 24. He's just made them man and woman, equal but different. And so because of that, verse 24, he says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh, talking about marriage. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So at a really baseline level, I want you to catch what's been said here. Some big things are being said about marriage and, and about sex as well. Marriage is designed for a man and a woman, according to Genesis 2. God made our bodies biologically different. It's built into us as his creation. If I could be so bold as to use the word gender or at least our manhood and our womanhood, which is what I mean by that, the fact that we are men and women, is not simply a social construct, nor is it a thing that people can determine for themselves. According to the Bible, God made us male and female. That's what's been said here. Now, I'm aware that that raises questions about um, people who are born intersex, which is a very small percentage of people, Um, and also for people who identify as transsexual. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. Hang on. Anyway, I'm aware it raises that question for us, and the fact is we just don't have time to dive into all that the Bible might have to say about a really really complex topic tonight. Um, But there's a whole talk on that topic up on our webpage. We had a Hot Topics teaching night on that topic, and so it's up on our webpage. You can chase that down and look at that there. Just give me one sec, sorry. 
just the mic as well. <coughs> Sorry. Fought off a cold this week and I thought my voice is all good. Sang, sang my guts out and now here we are. All right. So at a baseline level, notice we're created men and women. Second, marriage is the good and right place for sex. Verse 24, if you saw it there, <clears throat> is saying more than they became besties, they became one flesh. It's actually talking about the fact that their bodies were united together. I don't want to gross you out here, but basically their two bodies become one flesh. They're smooshed together in the act of sex. Now, verse 24 is saying that sex is a God-designed, beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It's not this, like, little naughty accident that crept into God's creation. It's not as if God made these sexless beings in the beginning and then from heaven he's kind of watching down on his creation and then he's like, hey, what are you guys doing touching each other like that? What? Put your clothes back on. No, no. God designed this this way. It's a part of his creation. Sometimes it can seem like Christians are anti-sex or that the Bible is, God is out to spoil our fun. I've already got a tea, so the water is appreciated, but we'll see if it's magical. If it goes real bad, Hazy, you're just going to have to finish my sermon, so we'll see what happens. You guys think I'm joking, but well. All right. So sometimes it seems as though the Bible, Christians are anti-sex, but God, God isn't anti-sex. Like marriage, sex is a good gift from God as well. You know what the first command in the Bible is? Have lots of sex. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. God's been a very big fan of sex from the beginning. Um, and notice in that verse, it mentions that sex is for making children which is a good thing. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for sex. So it's a, it's a good thing. Now, as a quick aside, it's worthwhile seeing that marriage and sex and children go together as a package deal. They're all tied up together. So don't have sex unless you want children. Don't get married unless you want children. Children are a part of God's good design for marriage and for sex. They're the natural expected outcome. God designed it that way. In the Bible, a marriage without children is actually always shown as a a tragedy. It's a sad outcome in the Bible. Sex and marriage without children, it isn't a lifestyle choice in the Bible. It's God's good design for marriage. Um, And where it's not possible because of infertility, that's a really sad and tragic thing. The Bible acknowledges that. So for those of you who are in the middle of um, grieving infertility, which I know some of you are, this is a terrible grief. It's a really sad thing. And so a normal and right response to that really sad thing is to grieve and feel the pain of that. But know that God loves you and he grieves with you in that. But for those of you who are keen on sex and marriage, we'll catch this, God's plan is that you would also be keen on children as well. And if you don't want kids, then it's really worth considering, do I want to pursue marriage at all to begin with? And can I say, can I, can I point out, this isn't some burdensome command by God. I think children have got a really bad rep in our society at the moment. People don't like children. They're seen as this terrible nuisance that are going to wreck our lives. 
But again, according to the Bible, they're a wonderful blessing. Psalm 127, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. They're a blessing from God, not one that we can assume God might give to us, but when he does, it's a wonderful blessing. And so when God calls something a good gift, we don't need to fear it. Guys, don't buy into the individualistic lie of our world, which says that children are this horrible burden, a waste of time. God doesn't see it that way. But sex isn't just for children. Some Christians would say the only reason God invented sex is just for children, but that's not the case either. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, God commands married people to enjoy lots of sex in their marriages for our good. 1 Corinthians 7 says, The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, that is, he should have sex with her, and likewise the wife to her husband. And notice this is a reciprocal thing between a man and a woman. Enjoy it. It belongs in every good marriage. It creates healthy marriages and helps people to obey God. And, catch this, sex is for pleasure as well. God designed it that way on purpose. There's a whole book of the Bible called Song of Songs, which I'm not going to take you to now, but if you want, go and read it yourself. It's great fun, um, and it's all about the fact, it's pretty wild really, but it's about, the, it's about romance and sex, and you can see that it's for pleasure. The lie the world tells us is that sex is only for pleasure, but that's to reduce it down to only too small a thing, but it is about pleasure and much more as well. So don't sell sex short. <clears throat> oh man. And so, sex leads to children, it's enjoyable, it creates intimacy for married couples. Here's the last thing. For our good, God commands that sex be saved for the safe and sacred place of marriage. Now that command is woven into almost everything that the Bible has to say about sex and marriage. <clears throat> But here's just one verse that makes it clear. Up on the screen, Hebrews chapter 13. Oh, sorry. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, which means save sex for marriage, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So sex is only for marriage and God takes his command seriously. How you use sex is a matter of obedience to God. But his commands aren't just random he's not just throwing this stuff at us for no reason these are actually good commands for our good now guys if sex in marriage with one person for the rest of your life sounds really lame to you i want to say that's because you've bought a lie you've been sold a lie by hollywood and the rest of the world out there that's telling us this stuff Um, there's actually some studies that have been done basically surveying people about sex over three different generations. Um, They compared the sex lives of people, I'll just say this loosely, but your age, kind of my age, uh, and then the age of your parents, and then basically grandparents' types of age. Um, And here's what they found. Um, Our generation, your generation, has largely ditched the conventional old-school picture of sex and marriage and basically says, do whatever you want, have sex with as many people as you can, as much as you can, whoever, don't worry about it. <clears throat> my parents at least and some of your parents were kind of part of the, the 70s, the, the, the free love movement, all that kind of stuff and they were experimenting with leaving sex behind, uh, marriage behind. But your grandparents' generation, whether they were Christian or not, they largely held to the Christian view of sex and marriage. 
But according to these studies, guess who reported having the most regular and most satisfying sex lives? Your grandparents. Yep, your grandparents. They knew what was up. Sex in marriage with someone that you trust, spending your life with them, growing closer in long-term, secure commitment together. The Christian view of sex is actually the best one. But we don't need studies to tell us that. And so sex is made by God for our good. And so we need to save it for that safe context of marriage. Now, guys, if, if there really is a creator God who really did make you and made this world and he made sex and marriage, surely he's the one to look to to see what to do with those things. Now, if you think there is no God, feel free to try and work out what to do with those things on your own. You're free to do that. But if you believe there's a creator God who knows you and loves you and made you, then the smart thing to do is to look to him and his good commands. He's not a buzzkill. He's not out to ruin your fun. His commands are good for our flourishing. And so when push comes to shove, who are you going to trust? Just give me a moment. Okay, here's the second big thing to see tonight. Marriage exists to show us Jesus' love. So come over to that second Bible reading we had in Ephesians chapter 5 and check out this. I want to show us some pretty big things. This is what Christian marriage, according to the Bible, should look like. First of all, you can see the instructions uh, to wives in verse 22 and 23. Have a look there. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of his church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, there's a whole bunch in there, but here's the main thing. it's, It's commanding wives to entrust themselves to the good and loving leadership of their husbands. Uh, and they're to, to submit to their husbands in the same way that Christ does, that the church does to Christ. Now, that's not saying that there's a complete... Um, those relationships are not identical. So it's not saying that um, husbands become like God to their wives. It doesn't mean that husbands get to boss their wives around and treat them badly. It doesn't mean that husbands get to make all the decisions or anything like that. But it does mean that wives are commanded to submit, respond to their leadership, follow, entrust themselves to the loving leadership of their husbands. But the good news is those husbands are to be the kind of people that you would want to trust yourself to because look at how husbands are to love their wives. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. that's how husbands are to love their wives, as one who puts their wife above themselves in everything. And so marriages are to be modelled on Jesus and the church, is what's been said here at the start of Ephesians 5. And so on the one hand, you could say that Jesus' love as he died on the cross to save his people is a great model for our marriages. And that's true, that is what's been said here, that is true, But there's something much bigger going on here in Ephesians 5. Because Jesus and the church isn't simply a model for really good marriages. Come down to verse 31 and see what else is going on there. 
Verse 31 here, he quotes from Genesis 2, which we're in before. Verse 31, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he's quoted from Genesis chapter 2 there, reminding us of what was said 2,000 years ago when Genesis was written, 2,000 years before this was written, 4,000 years ago. Um, But look at what Paul says Genesis 2 is actually about. He quotes Genesis, this ancient document, for his context, and then he says in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but when I quote Genesis 2 to you, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So what's he saying? He's saying all the way back in Genesis 2, What's it actually about? It's about Jesus and the church. From the very beginning, what is marriage actually about? It's about Jesus and the church. And so first and foremost, we don't just look to Jesus to teach us how to have good marriages, although we do. Marriage itself is actually meant to be the thing that teaches us about Jesus. Marriage is like a living, breathing illustration of how Jesus loves his people. That's what it's meant to point to. Last night I watched the movie June. It was pretty good. It's hard to say. I watched June, the movie. Uh, it was good. Like It's a solid movie. Really, really good. I loved it. Uh, but you know what I heard? I heard that actually um, someone's doing some books on the movie June and they're supposed to be really, really good. Like supposed to be excellent, in fact. And so I reckon they'll be a pretty good read. I, I do hope that these books do the great movie June justice though as well. I really hope that happens. Now you guys tell me, what's wrong with what I've just told you about those books and movies? What's the problem with what I've just said if you know about it? The books came a long way first. So the books were written in like the 70s or something like that and the movies are the afterthought that came way after. The movies exist because of the books, the OG books. It's always been about the books. The movies are the new thing. From the very beginning... Before Jesus even walked the earth, marriage was thought up by God because he had in mind Jesus and the church. Marriage exists for Jesus and the church, not the other way around. He made marriage so that we might look at it and see the incredible love that God has for us in Jesus. God loved us so much in Jesus that he gave up his one and only son. Jesus' love is so amazing, so central, so important. Marriage, as good as it is, is a small picture of the love that Jesus has for his church. A reminder pointing us to the greatest love story. The love that Jesus has for you, his people. And so guys, it means this. You could spend your whole lives chasing this or that girl, wishing you had this or that relationship, wishing the relationship you're in right now was different to what it is. Know this, above all of that, know this, the God of the universe loves you. Don't miss out on the greatest love, the greatest relationship that you can ever have. Make sure you know Jesus. Know the joy of having a secure, forgiven, loving relationship with him. And if you're friends, if you are married, and I know many of you are, make sure that your marriage is pointing to Jesus. If you're a husband, if you become a husband in the future, love your wife before yourself. Lay your life down for her, the way Jesus loved the church. And if you're a wife, if you become a wife one day, entrust yourself to the loving leadership of your husband, the way the church does to Jesus. Make your marriages point 
to the love that Jesus has for his people. Use it to show the world how awesome he is. All right, there's marriage. There's a topic of marriage. Um, let's apply now what we've learnt about marriage to the, to the topic of dating particularly. What about dating? What's the connection between marriage and dating? Well, guys, dating is a relatively new thing in our world. We made it up about 80 years ago. Uh, before then, uh, people pretty much just got to know each other and got married. That's how it worked. And in other cultures outside of ours, that's still how it's happening. And so the Bible doesn't say really anything directly about marriage because <clears throat> it wasn't a thing when the Bible was written. But the Bible says a lot about marriage and really that's the foundation for helping us understand how to think about dating as well. And so here's what marriage and what we've seen about marriage, here's what it shows us about as you go to think about dating. We're not built as humans to spend our lives moving from one relationship to the next, to the next, to the next. Sleeping with them, breaking up, moving on, breaking hearts, moving on, sleeping with one person for a while till you get bored and moving on. That picture of relationships, according to the Bible, is a broken one. That version of dating is busted. It'll hurt you and it'll hurt the people around you. Now, in a culture where the normal way you might get to know a person if you're romantically interested in them is through dating, well, here's what we could suggest about dating. Uh, Dating is a helpful way to get to know someone, uh, to figure out whether you might want to one day marry that person. But dating itself can't be the end goal of that relationship. And so can I talk to uh, Christians here at EV Night honestly about this for a second, about dating? Um, Some of you may discover in life that you have the gift of singleness, which, by the way, the gift of singleness I don't think means you just like being alone and you're happy to be alone for the rest of your life. I think the gift of singleness means the God-given position, the good gift of being in the position of being single. And so that can be a thing that you have because you choose to be single to pursue it or because your circumstances mean you are single and so you have the gift of singleness from God. But here's the statistical reality. For most of you, for many of you, uh, you'll end up married one day. The majority of you, that's probably going to be the case and that will be a good gift from God as well, the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. Statistically, most of you will end up married. And so, if you're keen to get married and you've thought it through, well, you don't need to be afraid of dating. (laughs) That's not an evil thing, it's not a bad thing. And you don't have to be afraid of each other either. You guys can talk to each other. Go ahead and have a fun time and, and chat and talk to one another. It's good if guys and girls are relating to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and perhaps more as well. Um, And can I say as a quick aside, it's good, irrespective of whether you're interested in marriage and dating, anything else in between, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be relating to one another across genders and age gaps and all the rest. We should be just hanging out and relating as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what's going on for you in this space. Um, But in a space where that's normal and healthy and going on, feel free to pursue relationships as well. Um, I've been hanging out with people of EV night age for a long time and there's been some seasons here at EV night where pastorally as I look around I'm kind of like, man you guys need to chill out a little bit, like this dating stuff is a little bit intense, there's way too much intensity of kind of 
breaking up, getting together, breaking up, and people getting married really young, and it's really intense and crazy. I've seen seasons like that here at EV Night. Um, but guys, my observation is that's really not our problem at the moment here at EV Night. In, in the broadest sense, I don't think that's our problem. I think for a congregation of mostly 18 to 25-year-olds, and I know there's a bunch of younger people, a bunch of older people as well, but for a bunch of young adults... People are like, yeah, I'm not 18 to 25. Sure, yes, I realise that. (laughs) Hint, neither am I, right? Okay. (laughs) But for a group of young people, on the most part, if I can generalise, guys, EV night is the best place you could possibly meet a person you want to marry if you'd like to get married one day. And so go ahead, knock yourselves out, meet one another, get to know each other. What are we calling it? Spread your wings in July, go to a park run, do what you've got to do, hang out. That's okay, that's fine. Uh, but can I say as a quick aside, <clears throat> um, continue to learn to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't only interested in each other because they're a possible prospective um, person you want to date or whatever. Uh, we should be in healthy community together and from that will flow all sorts of relationships and that's a great thing. If you want to get married, feel free to pursue that. Start hanging out, make some friends. Anyway, knock yourself out. There you go. All right, <clears throat> I feel like I've both scared you from hanging out with one another and also encouraged you to, so do with that what you will. Yeah. Um, all right, next question is, if you want to get dating and meet someone, who should you date? Well, the simple answer is, date the kind of person that you'd want to one day marry. That's a good person to date, which means if you're a Christian, well, the Bible's command actually is date a Christian, Particularly the command is Christians only marry Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 makes clear that Christians should marry Christians. Uh, but it's not, just, it's not just a command from God. It's really good advice. There's so many reasons why. Um, now, if you're new to this stuff, you're probably like, whoa, that's really heavy. Feel free to come and ask me questions about this and we can talk more. Um, but that's what the Bible says. I've lost track of the number. And here's one of the reasons that God would command his people this. I've lost track of the number of young people who love and follow Jesus, who make the decision to walk away from Jesus and reject him because they've made bad decisions about who they date. I've seen lots of people from EV night, close friends as well, walk away from Jesus. And so if you're going to date someone, find a a Christian brother or sister who loves Jesus as much as you do because he's the biggest thing in your life. So find the thing that you have in common, Jesus, and be united around that together. Now, guys, I realise I've only just pointed out the bare minimum of what the Bible might have to say about who you'd want to date, and there's a lot more that could be said about that. Um, There's a whole bunch more wisdom to pursue on that question, and so that's a conversation we can keep having in other places. Um, But let me at least say this. I'll give you one verse. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman, or, or a man in fact, who fears the Lord is to be praised. Guys, it's so dumb, so foolish to think that looks and superficial personality, charm, they're the things that matter. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. The Bible's not anti-beauty or attraction, but there's so much more to who we are than how we look and our charm. Deep, godly Christian character, someone who fears the Lord. That's what you should look for. Not just because God commands it, but because it'll make you happy as well. All right, we're almost there. 
We caught the connection between marriage and dating. We've seen who you might want to think about dating. Next question, question. As Christians, how should we date? If you find yourself in a relationship, how should we date? All right, here's where it gets spicy. <clears throat> how far is too far? Is a question that will come up. How do we please God in our relationships in a way that's godly? Well, guys, here's what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Among you, among you Christians, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity because these are improper for God's holy people. And so how much sexual immorality can I have in my relationship? How much sexuality, sexual immorality is okay for Christians? None. Not even a hint. It's got no place among God's people. I've got another verse for you. I used to hate this verse. I used to hate this verse so much because it, um, it got under my skin. But anyway, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. His instructions for how Christians should relate. And if you're dating one of them, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. That's how you should relate to your boyfriend or girlfriend. That's challenging, isn't it? I said earlier that Jesus' way is better, but it doesn't make it really easy, does it? And so if you're a follower of Jesus, what should your boundaries be physically with your boyfriend or girlfriend? The Bible's standard is absolute purity. Now, guys, we need to understand that um, sex is sexual morality. Sex is much broader than... I'm not trying to be rude here, but a penis going into a vagina, okay? There's much more going on than that when, when it comes to sex. Um, sexual morality includes touching each other's private parts, but not having sex. It includes seeing each other naked. It, it, includes, it can include, but may not necessarily include, hooking up and kissing. That can be sexual immorality. And so here's a helpful way to think about it. If what you're doing with your boyfriend or girlfriend is getting you sexually aroused then you know you have gone too far. It's clear that you have. And so set your boundaries for that stuff way back from too far so that if you do slip up and perhaps sin in a small way, you'll be a long way from more serious sin. Have you guys seen on train platforms those yellow lines that they run down the middle of the platform? Guys, like, I've seen this before, (laughs) 10 years ago. Um, You know, you you hear the announcement, please, train coming, please stand behind the yellow line, and they've got these lines painted a decent way back from the edge of the platform. Are you laughing because you've been telling your youth group kids this for years? That's great, good. All right. Anyway, why don't they put that yellow line right on the edge of the train platform? Like, why do they put it like a good half a metre back from the edge? Because it's not as if you step a toe over that, a train's going to suddenly mow you down and kill you. Why do they point the yellow line where they do? Well, the reason is the consequences for getting this wrong are so severe, they don't shove the yellow line right on the edge and, like, clearly don't step onto the tracks. They put it way back here so that even if you do make a small mistake, there's a margin for error there. Think about that in the way you draw your boundaries in dating. The temptation is to push the limits right up to the edge of the platform. Don't. Draw the line well back from danger. That's wisdom. And so maybe that means never kissing before you get married. Now it sounds pretty wild, doesn't it? I've I've got friends whose first kiss was on their wedding day. 
could mean that. Maybe it means never going beyond a quick peck on the lips or cheek or whatever, a light hug to say goodnight. You need to work this stuff out. Use your own brain, work it out. You need to know yourself and your own heart and know what God's word says. You've got to work this stuff out. <clears throat> now, what do you do if you've already stuffed up here? What do you do if you found yourself in a relationship where this is now a mess for you? Well, guys, it's really the same thing that you do with any sin in your life. Talk to God about it. Repent. Confess your sin to God and know that in Jesus you are forgiven. Ask for God's strength to change and grow you, but drink deeply of his grace and know that you are forgiven. Know the forgiveness that you do have in Jesus and repent. Second, can I suggest, talk to your boyfriend or girlfriend about it. Have an honest conversation about what's really going on. And this is hard to do because you probably value that closeness and the thing that's going on for you there physically. Uh, But what matters more to you, your girlfriend, your boyfriend or Jesus? And so don't leave sin undealt with. Talk about what's really going on with each other. And if, can I say this? If your boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't want to talk about this stuff and acknowledge what's going on and talk about boundaries and all that kind of stuff, well, that shows that they don't love you as much as they say they do. You can show how much you love a person by caring about their relationship with God, not by using them for your own pleasure. Third, Talk to someone outside the relationship and ask for help as well. And I just say, boyfriends and girlfriends make lousy accountability partners. <laughs> you need the clarity of an outside voice that brings perspective. And so find a Christian mate, perhaps a leader or a Bible leader or something that you trust and talk to them about what's going on. Break that pattern of secrecy. This is just a thing between you and me. And last, this is pretty hefty uh, and it's wisdom. It's not a rule, but change or break up. Work at growing and see change in your relationship. Work at self-control and honouring God in this part of your life. But if you find that again and again and again you can't control yourself, if marriage isn't an option or if marriage isn't wise, which you could pursue, then break up. Don't wait around in a relationship that's repeatedly, habitually leading you to sin against God again and again and again and again. Do something about it to change that circumstance. Whether it's to change and grow and move forward or to break up or get married, but change that circumstance. Jesus says it's better better to chop off your hand than to go to hell with two hands. Now there's imagery going on there, but the point is sin is serious. And so treat sin seriously like Jesus, even if it costs you something dear. Remembering God's love for you and his grace in Jesus, take your sin seriously. All right, we've seen the connection between dating and marriage. We've seen who to date. We've seen some things on how to date. Last thing, should you start dating someone? If this is a question you've got to work out, should you start dating someone? Now, the fact is there's just no verses in the Bible that are going to answer this question for you. Uh, There's no verse that will say, do this or that. It's just not what the Bible says. And so, sorry, I can't answer that question for you tonight. But here's a few questions you can ask yourself, and you can think about these questions for yourself. One question is, are you at a stage where marriage is actually a possibility for you? So if you're 14, 
Well, marriage is probably a long way off in Australia at least. If you're 22 but you have zero interest in getting married, well then marriage is probably a long way off for you as well. And so if marriage isn't a possibility, what would be the point of dating to begin with? That's one good question. Are you at the stage where marriage is a possibility for you? Now on the flip side, if you're keen to get married and that's on the horizon as a possible real thing for you, then maybe dating someone is a great idea. I think people often find themselves in a relationship, they're dating, they're with this person, and then on the fly they have to answer the question, now do I want to get married one day? (laughs) You're already in this relationship that's going along and then you're like, should I get married? And that becomes a really loaded question because you're in this relationship with this person and there's this commitment. That's a good thing to get clear on before you start a relationship. Here's another question worth asking. Are you self-controlled enough to be a godly person in a relationship? See, one thing that we've already said clearly that comes along with a dating relationship is the temptation to sin. And so don't start a relationship with someone when you can't control yourself on your own. It's actually really unloving to drag someone else into that circumstance with you and throw another person into the mix as well. And in general, apart from self-control sexually... Are you a mature man or woman who's grown up in Christ? That's a really good question to answer, first of all. Make sure you're the kind of man or woman that would make a good husband or wife one day. And then if you've got that sorted, well then go chasing the relationship if you want. Now here's the third and most complex question to answer. Have you worked out whether you want to get married? That's a good question to answer. If you really don't know whether you want to get married... Um, then what would be the point of dating? I said this a second ago, but what would be the point? For a Christian, if a dating relationship was never going to be headed anywhere in the first place, then what's the point of that to begin with? And so if you're not married, you actually have a really significant decision to make. Marriage is a great thing. It's a good gift from God, as we've seen in the Word tonight, but it does actually come with a huge price tag. It's worthwhile spotting that. A single person, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, is much freer to serve the Lord Jesus with their whole life. 1 Corinthians 7, it's worth chasing down and reading yourself later on. But verse 38, he summarises, he says, the person who does, who does marry does right. So you've not done the wrong thing if you marry, it's a good thing. But the person who does not marry does even better, says Paul. Now he's not saying that one way is sinful and one way is not. He's not, saying, he's not down on marriage. But what he is affirming is that there are wonderful opportunities to serve Jesus single-mindedly while ever you're single. And so don't just presume that all of us must get married. Most of you probably, statistically at least, will, and that's a good gift from God if you do, but there's no script for your life that says you must get married or that you will. Your life doesn't have to end in marriage. It's a genuine decision that you're free to make. And so work that question out before you dive into the question of dating. Now on the flip side, guys, if you're keen to get married and you're clear on that, you are so free to pursue that. Uh, You probably won't get married in our cultural context unless you start a dating relationship with someone. I guess some arranged marriages do happen in our culture, but not many. And so if that's what you want to pursue, you are so free as a Christian to do that. It's not a crime to be interested in starting a relationship with someone. It's not a bad thing to be clear about your intentions and forward in all of that. 
So in a loving and respectful way, you're free to do so. But guys, let me finish with this. While ever you are not married, whether that's for the rest of your life or for a season, make the most of these years. When I say single, I mean dating as well. Whether you're dating someone or not, or hope that that's going to change or whatever in between, these years before married are precious. Take advantage of the fact that you don't have a family that you're responsible for and so you can serve Jesus single-mindedly. That's a great opportunity. Don't waste these younger years on a string of pointless relationships that were never going to go anywhere. Don't, don't waste these years feeling sorry for yourself because this isn't where you want it to be because you want that relationship and it's not happening. Whatever season you're in, brothers and sisters, serve Jesus with the position that you have in life now. It's a great opportunity. I'm going to pray in a minute. I'm going to invite the band up. and They're going to jump up on stage. I'm going to lead us in prayer in a second. But I want you to take some time now just to reflect on some of the stuff you've heard in the Word tonight. There's been a lot. What particularly is God asking you to do in His Word tonight? What might it look like for you in your context, whatever that is, to live out this stuff? Where might you need to repent? Repent.